0: Tuesday New Haven welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio I'm Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick well we have a hometown young woman made good with us today (laughs) Jasmine Hughes is a reporter and an editor at the New York Times and has just won an Ellie a prestigious American Society of Magazine Editors award for deeply observed portraits of major culture figures that reveal their subjects with insight and humor, which is very accurate of the way Jasmine Hughes writes. Jasmine Hughes, welcome to Dateline New Haven and thanks for making time for your hometown.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you for reaching out to me. This is like, this is up there with the Ellie. I think that they are even for me as a proud New Haven native. Thank you.
0: Well, I've been following your career for years and I was thinking, boy, I I really do love your writing a lot. I'll just- Oh, thank you so much, that's so kind. And I wanna talk today about the award I want to talk about your path to becoming a successful writer in New York and nationally and how you approach profile writing, because I sure. find it very interesting. Yeah. But first, I want to ask you about Evan Gershkovich. He's the Wall Street Journal reporter who's 31 years old, I guess, same age as you, mm-hmm. who um, who's been like, kidnapped, and actually you know, arrested by in, in Russia on trumped up charges as part of our ongoing uh, battles with the U.S. and Russia over the Ukrainian uh, war. And I guess from your social media feed, it turns out you're friendly with Evan. So I'm just asking how you're doing and how this affected you.
1: Ay, Dios. Thank you so much for asking about Evan, uh, who I have known for many years as Gersh. And I wrote to him the <laughs> other day and I was like, the craziest thing of all is that everyone's calling you Evan. And I keep saying who's uh, <laughs> that. Evan and I met when we were young kids starting at the time as so we, we were like 23, 24. And um I was scrolling back through some of our old messages and we talked so much about like how much we loved journalism and how Evan because he is of Russian descent his parents had had emigrated over from Russia from the Soviet Union rather in the 70s uh just how being a correspondent in a place like Moscow was like beyond his wildest dreams so when he got this job we were so thrilled for him and so it I think it makes it especially heartbreaking to see all of this I mean there's really nothing worse than your friend being detained in a Russian prison but the fact that this is like his lifelong dream to do this sort of work and he's being punished subsequently is pretty hard but um recent reports are saying that he is in good spirits as far as one could be and um He's eating and he's wearing his normal clothes and he's cracking jokes. So it's the best that we can hope for right now.
0: Jasmine, you said you knew him when you were starting out. Was he at the Times as well?
1: Yes. Evan started at the New York Times as a news assistant, I want to say, in 2015, 2016.
0: And what were you doing at the time there?
1: I was uh, an assistant editor, just like a very, uh, it was my first job. So my very low ranking editor status.
0: And did you guys, like, was there a group that hung out? Were there a group of? Age peer, starting out journalists decide to work in the office, get to know each other, go out for drinks or dinner, do stuff on the weekends or support each other
1: absolutely i mean what's what's special about evan is that i think that he had so many of these connections and relationships across the newsroom uh i saw him in the office but it came to pass that we lived like four blocks away from each other and he lived and i I think i must have lived with myself and he lived in an apartment with like three other guys about his age so like when I think of Gersh, I think of our times in the office and the New York Times cafeteria and reading stories and emailing back and forth about our favorites. But I also think of like beer pong and going to bars in our neighborhood and Evan making like midnight eggs for everybody when we got back from the club. Like we had a lot of, we had a lot of really good times and I really hope that he comes back home safely and soon.
0: That is a good cafeteria, by the way. I was there front of the <laughs> the man. You guys eat well over there. I yeah, just think it's so. not
1: bad. <laughs>
0: And um, so where where was the neighborhood you guys lived and what bars would you hit?
1: Uh I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And Evan lived, I guess, in technically Prospect Heights, closer to Washington Avenue. Uh, so there's a dancy bar called Friends and Lovers that I remember us spending way too much time at. Uh a bar on Washington that's changed names a bunch of times. There's, but mostly there's a um a pretty big and well-known plant shop across the street from his old apartment called Natty Garden. And uh, I think we'd spent a lot of time there. This was a period in every millennial's life when we like had sort of started to realize that it might not be possible for us to like own property and have children like our parents did, at least financially comfortably so. And so everyone got really into plants. So I remember really? bringing him... And his roommates, a bunch of like 25-year-old dudes over to the plant shop and being like, all right, let us find some things that are going to just make your apartment look a little more adult, a little more pulled together. <laughs> and obviously the plant died within like a month.
0: Oh, his plant or your plant?
1: His plant.
0: No, is it a Caribbean theme? Natty plant? Natty
1: Garden, yes. It's a Jamaican owned and operated uh, plant store.
0: So I guess if we're opening now, the, it might be more diversified supply of um plants, given the yeah. legal changes. You know. so we're talking <laughs> to Jasmine Hughes. grew up in New York, and she's he's just like hitting out of the park in New York as a story editor and writer at the New York Times Magazine. Just won an Ellie profiling Award here on Dateline New Haven. But first, we're talking about a friend of hers she came up in the business with, who's now in the headlines. And our hearts are definitely going out to him and his family and his friends as he's stuck in a prison in Russia as he was reporting there for the Wall Street Journal. So you then your past didn't diverge, but yet sort of a parallel climbs. Oh, he yes. left the Times. He eventually became went to Moscow News, Wall Street Journal, became a successful international correspondent. You became the successful. Story editor and editor and writer in New York. You stayed in touch. I take it regularly.
1: Yes, I mean not incredibly regularly. Last time I saw Evan, I had run into him in Penn Station, of all places. He came back to the states to get his COVID vaccine. Really, um,
0: he didn't want those Russian vaccines. They I think he
1: wanted as many vaccines as many <laughs> possible. But he came back to the states to get his COVID vaccine. I think he'd only come back maybe once a year since he had left, and that was in 2017. We mostly just kept up up with each other on social media. And like I said, I was scrolling through some of our messages and my last few messages for him was was him saying like, look, we really did it. Like all the dreams we cast when we were 24, 25 years old, we really, we've achieved them. So I'm very, very proud of him. And I'll say, considering uh, what week it is in the Jewish faith and Evan is a man of Jewish faith as well. I think I've heard of a lot of people setting an extra place setting for mm. him at their Passover seders. I'm going to do that
0: too then. I, I imagine I
1: will also do it as well.
0: Um. So when, uh, when was that message that you guys sent that we finally did it?
1: Uh, when he got the Wall Street Journal job. So about a little less than a year ago.
0: A little less than a year ago. So how's it impact a reporter when it's someone that close to you with that same part of life? Are you, I noticed there's a lot going on in social media and Austin? it's hard to know how much social media activity reflects what's going on outside of social media. Are you, are, are you and other people who are friends in that circle in regular contact? Are you doing anything to help each other? Or I don't know if there is a way to help Evan except keep it in the news. Are you feeling anything specific that you're sharing with each other about how this impacts you as you go about your day-to-day job? I mean, you just won this big award at the same time as your friend got taken prisoner.
1: You know, and I'll tell you, it's the craziest thing. I woke up the day after the awards, you know, hungover with a box of dominoes next to me to a news alert with my friend's name. And I
0: was like, (laughs) listen, I
1: know it was a really, really low point for me. I admit (laughs) it. I'll be the first to say. Uh, But I saw the news alert and I was like, oh, that's so funny. Someone with Gersh's name has been arrested in Russia. And then I was, and then I opened my phone and I had like 10 texts from friends being like, is that your friend? So it feels like totally bizarre bananas to have that and the Ellie have happened in the past in the same 12 hours. Um, I've reached out to his roommate from your when he and I, when Evan and I spent a lot of time together. So I've been in touch with him and I connected the roommate to Evan's parents because some of the Wall Street Journal people had been confapping with the Times people. You know, there are a lot of um, I think varied groups. He's got like uh New York or American journalist friends. He's got uh, so many friends in Russia. He's gotten like college friends. He's from Princeton, New Jersey. So he has friends from people in Princeton. So there are all these disparate groups but the way in which we've all come together is that I think his friends in Russia have up an email address, which I, I can find the address for right now, and uh, they're encouraging people to send Evan letters and notes. Now, because he's being held in a Russian state prison, all of those letters have to be translated into Russian, but they have found someone to do that translation work. so. Anyone is encouraged to reach out to him at free Gershkovitz. Last name is G E R S H K O V as in Victor I C H free Gershkovitz at gmail.com.
0: And how do they get those? I guess you have to use Google. That'd be kind of funny so for him. They Google are translate.
1: so god i know so we have uh found i believe a a fact checker someone like loosely affiliated, or i'm sorry affiliated with the journalism industry who is fluent in russian and who's going to do all the translation work and they're just we're delivering or they're delivering um you know notes from friends from admirers from just everyday people a- anyone is encouraged to reach out to him because he's uh unfortunately probably doesn't have a lot of other stuff to do
0: and, and without belaboring the point, it's been a few days, I'm guessing it felt like weeks, given the intensity of the days where you won this big award that's sort of a high point in your career. He was at a high point in career, your friend, who you're a colleague with, who's now imprisoned. How has that been emotionally for you? Have you been able to savor this award beyond the Domino's pizza? Have you been able to? <laughs> are you like immersed? You don't seem like all draggy about the Evan thing, although I'm sure it's very upsetting. What's it been like for you just personally to reach this point in your career at the same time as your friend? it that makes
1: point. me feel old isn't that insane I can't believe that I've been you're not old in by the way <laughs> I know i that's the craziest part It makes me feel something that I'm not no it's um it makes me feel first and foremost like terrified for my friend like the first I think that news came out last Wednesday and I couldn't leave my apartment I was just like refreshing constantly and looking at his name and then you know trying to stop myself from going down the rabbit hole of what had happened to people such as Brittany Griner or other people who had been taken uh, into these, these prisons. And uh, I felt really, really freaked out and really scared and sort of insane that like my sweet dear friend Gersh, who I've like played beer pong with dozens of times, could be in this predicament. As time has gone on, I think the the best thing for me has been to Continued to reaching out to his friends. Uh, This man called Joshua Yaffa wrote a beautiful essay on Evan in the New Yorker, published at the end of last week, which I read and I cried and I sent him a note. I've been talking to his old roommates, like I said. I've been in touch with uh, Margaret Sullivan, one of his old bosses at the Times. It's just, it's been helpful to talk about him, you know, just to both like, keep his name in the media, but also at the forefront of my mind. Because at the end of the day, beyond being my friend, he's just a journalist who was assigned to do his job. And if this sort of thing can happen to him, it can happen to so many other people. And in order for us to, you know, to lessen, I think, the possibility of that occurring, we have to keep this at the forefront of our minds and work to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else.
0: Jasmine Hughes, uh, editor and writer at the New York Times Magazine, product of New Haven. So tell me a little bit about winning the Ellie. How big a deal is that to you that, you know, you work so hard at your magazine writing, you've worked so hard at at building a career in journalism. Is this, a, was this a big deal to you? Was that why you had the Domino's and woke up? I
1: got the, <laughs> the Domino's because I was I'm running I'm gonna stop on- raving
0: you about that because I think <laughs> Domino's is fine. That's very snotty. No, I mean.
1: it's it's actually, Paul, the thing is Domino's is not fine and I should have known fine. that. Dominoes it was just the only thing open at 1 a.m. You know, when I got nominated <laughs> for the award, I was like, oh, this is it. This is the equivalent of winning, you know, because I have worked at the New York Times since I was 28 years. It'll be my eight year anniversary next year, next week, I mean. And um, so to have come in as sort of like a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, mildly idiotic 23-year-old, and I've gotten to the point where my boss and my editor, the same people who hired me, believed in me and my talent and my skill enough to even nominate me for this award. These are the people who've really seen me grow most in my professional life. That was a um, that was a gift unto itself. And I, I felt incredibly grateful and I felt like seen and validated by the people who knew me best. And I was like, I don't even need to win this award. But then when I won the award, I was like, oh, <laughs> I loved winning this award. It? How'd you celebrate it? I, um, how did I celebrate it? You know, I'm still celebrating. I, I don't know. I ordered the dominoes. I like uh, got flowers from a bunch of people. That was all very nice. But what I'll say about the award is that um you know, we all have that sort of like scary lizard monster in the back of our heads in various sizes, just, you know, whispering to us being like, you're not that great. You're not all you're cropped up Jippy, or everyone's lying to you or like you're embroiled in a huge conspiracy where everyone's pretending that you're a good writer. I've and now I become, you know, yes, yes. And so now I, I feel as if uh, I can, there are all these times in which I've convinced myself that I've gotten everything in my life through charm which I've gotten quite a bit through charm, which is a skill in and of itself. But I think looking at the award, which I'm doing right now, I didn't know any of these people who nominate, who like uh, elected that I get it, or I don't know anyone on the committee. And so I really do feel like my, I don't know, my bearings, my charm, my charisma, my social media appearance, like all the the sort of trimmings that like follow me into the office or like when you meet me in person, I think. weren't on the table it was just my work and so I feel like it's sort of for the first time it feels pretty uh unquestionable Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to validation it's it's very validating and I'm trying to hold on to that
0: so you grew up in New Haven did you you uh uh
1: uh, New Haven yes I did
0: (laughs) and did you were you thinking of being a journalist when you were growing up a writer what was on the mind
1: I wanted to be, I think I went to be a lawyer basically up until like first week of freshman year of college. And then I was like, ooh, it oh. <laughs> seems like a lot. You went to, you went of to work. Hill House, right? I went to Hill House. I went to ECA. And I also and had my daughters. Got to went to ECA. I wonder
0: if you overlap. Did you know oh, any really? Bass, did you know any Bass kids? In, in, I you,
1: don't you, know. Sarah think or so. Annie? Sarah ba- actually does sound familiar. I graduated from ECA in 2008. That's so when my daughter Annie graduated.
0: Yeah. She was in your class at ECA.
1: Yeah. yeah. Were you she you in the music no I was in dance oh crazy. they
0: were in writing yeah they have a great I love ECA I,
1: I love like ECA like a and I thought the writers so were so cool actually it's funny when I was at ECA I auditioned for dance I thought about writing but I was like now and the writers were like so cool and poised and like when they uh when we had our final events you know like the dancers would put on a performance the musicians would play a concert but the writers would just come and do these like I mean, these readings, obviously. And I thought they were so it was like seeing beatniks <laughs> for the first time. I was like, "Damn, yeah, they wanted so to. Cool, cool. Their music.
0: <laughs> but, but Jess, so you went to Connecticut College and what flipped the switch? How'd you go from lawyer to wanting to be a reporter?
1: I went to the first student newspaper meeting and I thought that the editor in chief of the paper was very cute, like a man. <laughs> you know, I I gave up years later and um I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to join this. It was between that and Habitat for Humanity because the meetings were at the same time. Oh. But the editor-in-chief of the paper was cute. And I was like, cool. And then, um, you know, I worked on my college paper at Connecticut College the, my entire four years. And I think one winter break, either between freshman or sophomore year, I interned at the New Haven Register. I emailed them and I was sort of like, hey guys, you need any help? I've been, you know, Like, I I remember being at Hill House in the cafeteria and, like, reading the paper every morning with my free lunch. Like, it's, the New Haven Register had always been such a long part of my life. Uh, And so I interned there under Helen McDonald, who was very, very wonderful to me. And, uh, but yeah, the New Haven Register is actually probably the first, like, regional non-college newspaper I'd ever worked on. And once I did that, I was sort of like, this is fun. and. had just been trucking ahead ever
0: since. And you had, five, you had four sisters, but I read this, this excellent piece you wrote years back about being one of five sisters. And you said sister math means six equals five. You talked about how you have five siblings because you feel so much a part of one entity. Yeah. And your sisters have similar career trajectories. How are they doing?
1: No, my sisters are, Paul, I got to tell you, you got the worst hues on the phone with you today. My sisters are all far cooler, more successful than I am. Uh, Two of them still live in Connecticut, one in Bridgeport, one in Hampton. The older one is a teacher- uh, an ESL teacher. And I should know the name of the school that she works at, but I don't. I'm sorry. Uh, and then my younger sister is like a page and layout editor for Hearst to Media. So she does a lot of the front pages of the local papers. And then two of my other sisters live together in Los Angeles and they are trying to make it big. And honestly, I think they will.
0: So that's an ambitious group. Sounds like a talented group and very word oriented group of sisters. Yeah. Were your parents in education or writing or
1: my dad, growing up, my dad was a broadcast producer for ABC News in the city, oh. so there's not a lot of time Union Station, going to pick them up. Uh, and my mother is now a chiropractor's assistant, but she was working in the nursing industry when I was coming up. Mm-hmm.
0: Jasmine Hughes, New York Times. So you got your break getting to the Times after working in a bunch of places like um, Hairpin and uh, New Yorker you wrote for. How did mm-hmm. you get into the editing slot at a young age at the magazine?
1: Dumb luck, I think, honestly. I got my job... Let's start back. I got my job at the Times because the New York Times Magazine was trying to have a like, sort of like web component. And the way that, you know, oh. the New Yorker.com has like a really healthy web output that doesn't appear in the magazine, same with New York Magazine. Uh, and so when the Times Magazine was trying to do that, I was brought in as a, a web editor. And that experiment or that effort, I would say, only lasted about a year or two. And then they just decided to like fold that web stuff into the print magazine, you know. Unlike the New Yorker, or New York Magazine, the New York Times Magazine like lives in a newspaper, you know? And so there are lots of other places. There are lots of desks around the around the newspaper to do this sort of online only content. So once I got folded into the print magazine at the Times, it's probably like 2016, 2017, I started like editing columns and things. And it was, you know- Do you
0: do Judge or- Hodgman's column?
1: I did do Judge Hodgman's column. I a love few that times. one. That is the
0: best. That is always it's so a funny. five sentence riot every week.
1: <laughs> I'll have to tell my friend who did the majority of the editing. Okay. I did Hodgman's column. I did the interview column in the back of the book. I edited some front of a book things. And you know the difference between my my editing at the hairpin, which I very much I was editing all the personal essays, and editing at the Times is that people edit your edits. And so I really felt as if, or and I continue to feel as if like in my editing, I think I was an editor at the Times for five, six years, and it was really trained, like it's sort of like it's paid grad school in a way or like a fellowship or I don't, I always liken it to like playing for the Yankees, like getting to come up and learn as an editor of the New York Times is such a, such a solid foundation that I could not be more grateful for
0: I wasn't clear looking up. I know that you're still writing, you know, obviously these profile, long form profiles in the Times Magazine. You're also doing Metro reporting, right? Or is that still not happening?
1: No, I'm now, I have to update my video. I am now just a staff writer for the magazine. I had oh, spent excellent. two years prior being a staff writer for the magazine and a reporter on the Metro desk. But now so I noticed you got
0: like to it. do that memorable story of how Eric Adams spends his nightlife. And oh, i was just imagining what oh that God. must have been like for you. Because he goes, he hangs out with these like somewhat shady, like Lubovitch or, you know, orthodox. Mm-hmm. Through his business people and stuff, but he goes to these clubs and he's out pretty late, which is fun. I wonder what that's like to report that as a young woman who he knows that it's not going to be good press for him, but he has a little bit yeah. of Jimmy Walker in him where he wants to be kind of like, I'm the fun guy because we have a fun city. What right. was it like for you to trail him at night?
1: Oh, oh, Casablanca
0: Like the Casablanca like <laughs> enclaves of New York.
1: Oh, God, it was awful. I mean, it was, it was a tough time for me because funnily enough, I was also working on the Whoopi Goldberg profile. So I was just like, very, very overdrawn. But what we would do is uh, myself, Sarah Mazenier, my co-writer on the story and uh, three stringers, we would be like, post, we have this huge calendar with like five restaurants, (laughs) because we couldn't get the mayor's (laughs) schedule. So Ah! we like narrowed down his five Favorite places in the city, and we would send someone to just like post up outside of them from the hours of like nine to midnight or whatever. And we'd we'd be in this massive group text, and so the first person to spot him would be like, "Okay, he's leaving in this car. This is the license plate. This oh is the big. This is uh, the direction they were headed." When I lost them, whatever, whatever, we were trailing them. I would like dress. um, we reached out to the mayor, and I think that he had pushed back on, or rather, he tried to delay us like going out an official night with him. So, in my trailing him, I like tried to dress like a teen, you know. Like, I tried not to bring any attention to myself. I was just like a regular young person who's standing outside this restaurant for three hours, just like not in a weird way, taking notes, you know. So it was a lot of like uh <laughs> Being in a, like, what did like he say when he'd see you
0: watching him going and out? So he never was. Oh, with... he
1: didn't see us.
0: No. Oh, you were never at the next table knew. listening. Yeah.
1: Uh there were a couple times I was at the next table, but you know, I'd bring a friend, and I was just a young woman out at a restaurant taking some notes under the table. So you'd watch but him. He didn't know that we were trailing him. I think until the very end.
0: And then, how did he react? Did he say anything to you? Like, what were you, what were you doing? Ugh. Why don't you leave me alone?
1: he said some things that I don't think were factually accurate. Uh, really? like but what? he said, uh, you know, I think our reporting, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but you know, we reported that he went to this restaurant called Rio La Baya in midtown Manhattan that is owned by these two brothers. You were just referencing <laughs> that in the course of a month, he went there, let's say 20 times over uh, 31 days or something. <laughs> and, uh, eric adams's response was and I'm, I'm totally just um what's the word i i'm just summing it up first us. it was like oh well they only saw me at Asri La labaya because they were only outside of Asri La labaya i go to mad other restaurants and I was Oh, like, so you oh. thought you
0: were giving him enough credit for night Now, you know so interesting to me jasmine that he he allowed marine dowd to follow him around for a very mm-hmm. different kind of story she's sort of doing the cultural look and obviously he must have known from the outset that would be a narrative arc that made him out to be heroic for having right. sort of a, a kind of g- a character out on the town showing that new york's great and she kind of has always celebrated that kind of lifestyle whereas you guys were looking at like what are the connections to these brothers do they get city business do, right. is he is he getting favors from giving does
1: he pay he- has he paid for a single meal he would show up to this restaurant again basically three four nights a week with an entourage of maybe 12 to 15 people and we were just like who's paying for this anyway it was a really really fun if you're gonna be a metro reporter i got to cover blessedly the new york city mayoral race and then once we got a mayor i got to trail him around the city i feel pretty good in the movie of my life that'll be the action scene and then i'll go back to and class. it's
0: fair to say you've really made your reputation of these longer profiles of of prominent people in culture, right? Mm-hmm. You got you mentioned Whoopi Goldberg, Kalila, Charlemagne the Viola Davis, Questlove, and my favorite piece of them all, Little Nas X. I just thought that was a, a really special piece. Thank but you. how did you become the uh, the person who kind of mastered these? in-depth cultural profiles that you know really capture the person you hung out with them you you capture what's fun of them you have lively scenes but you also connect with them and tell us why they matter how did that happen
1: mm. i think there are three steps to that one i love profiles i've always wanted to write like magazine magazine celebrity profiles and so when as i mentioned when evan and i would talk about our hopes and dreams. Like he wanted to go to Moscow and I wanted to be like a magazine writer. And so this Mm. is something that I have been trying to do since I was in college easily. I wrote a fake profile on my college roommate just to see if I could do it. And it was great. Uh, Two, I have a phenomenal editor. It's also my close friend, this woman called Claire Gutierrez, who just, we've worked together for a long time. And I'll tell you, Paul, when I wrote my Whoopi Goldberg story, I had to get my wisdom teeth out halfway through. So I was on some pretty powerful painkillers. And I wrote a draft that I swear to you, I like had this idea about Whoopi Goldberg and Frederick Douglass and the ways in which they were similar. And Claire was like, What's this? We're just, I'm gonna are you, you just take the rest of the day off and then I'm just <laughs> gonna take this out. And then lastly, um. I'm a psychopath. I mean, the thing about loving profiles is that you go and you read the archival works in like Vanity Fair, the New Yorker, the New York times. And you're, and the writer is like, I had six months with this person. And I just, I foam at the mouth. Nowadays you get a day. If you're lucky, I think with little Nas X, I got over the course of two or three days, I got like three hours with him. You don't get a lot of time with these people. So you have to, uh, a do a ton of ton of ton of ton of research but be just like ask the weird awkward questions just like directly because you you know you don't have that much time in an ideal situation you would spend some time with the person and build up some trust and I do try to do that over a short periods of time together but for someone like uh Lil Nas X I just had to be like uh I don't know what the direct question I asked. I
0: guess him was. so. I was wrong because I thought you must have spent weeks with him because you had this connection with him. You going driving in the car with him, going to get the pastrami sandwich, and what I think I got from him, it, because what I was looking for in that story was to understand his sort of knowing humor.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, he
0: was this guy when he blew up because he did him when he blew up, like about mm-hmm. two summers ago, right? And he was, and there was something about the way he was sort of winking at us, whether it was questioning gender norms, you know, blending the country and dealing, smiling, you know, with Billy Cyrus as he knows what people face if you're Black in a country singer, but he was going ahead. He knew how to use social media to get attention when he'd call questions on things, but have fun while he's doing it. And it seemed to be this mix of sort of intelligence, canniness, and talent, and fun. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, maybe you don't agree with that, I felt like when you were in the car with him and he was reacting to you, I felt like that came out. But what was going through your mind? Did you not have that sense of him the way I did? Like, oh, did no. I
1: thought, would I... I had to been interested in him. I pitched the story about him after his music video for Montero, Call Me By Your Name, came out. And mm-hmm. the famous right. one where he grinds on the devil. So I was interested in him as another Black person who grew up with, like, roots in the South, even though I'm from New Haven, and roots in the church and also is queer. And then I met him and I was like, oh, my God, this is the most charming person in the entire world. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I felt like I was blushing. I was like, oh you're so cool. It was funny. I think that, uh, he and I got along because he is part of the reason why he's so brilliant is that he's just spent a lot of time on the internet and he knows how things move. He knows what people want to see. He knows how to make things stand out. And so I think we have the same or very similar twisted sense of humor, um, that comes with being on the, on the internet every freaking day. But also I think, um, what I found really like gratifying and silly about that entire thing is that he thought I was old. He sort of just like treated me like a fuddy, an older fuddy daddy. And I was like, I'm 29. I'm 29 years old, sir. Like this is don't tell yeah, me but he was I'm like 22. Wasn't he? he was 22. And he told me I was yeah. aging gracefully. And I was like, <laughs> one day you're going to turn 29. I'm going to remind you of this. So How that do- was a fun, humbling moment for me.
0: When you, uh, you do this research, you hang out with them, how do you get that connection, especially if it's a little bit time-limited? These people are very sophisticated about image. They have handlers. Mm-hmm. They vetted you, probably. How do you get them to open up? How do you connect? Whether it's Be Goldberg, Questlove, how, do you have any, I don't mean tricks, because you mm-hmm. know, you have Janet Malcolm style, which is sort of treat him, get him to trust you, and then, like, get the dagger. You don't do that. How do, you, how do you do it? I don't
1: do L.A., I I mean, I have a little dagger. I would love to have a Janet Malcolm's dagger, but I think I have a little, I have like a little butter knife that I like turn <laughs> at times. I think that I, oh, I'll say two things. One, I've been lucky enough to interview people who more or less want to be interviewed or understand the name of the game. There are some people, there are plenty of subjects that I've seen my colleagues uh, cover who do not want to open up and that seems really difficult and so I blessedly haven't been in that situation I don't totally know what I would do if I were but I have found that more than wanting to be known people don't want to be misunderstood and so I try to by means of getting them to open up or loosen up I first say like hey I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about yourself like we know what this is but before we start do you want to ask me any questions about me it's only fair some people take me up on it. Lil Nas X, for example, asked me if my glasses were real. And then he <laughs> tried them on. He's like, oh my God, you can't see. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and so that sort of broke the ice and then it got us in a good place. Some people like Kalela, I asked her, if she had any questions for me. And she was like, no. And then we, you know, we ended up like getting a glass of wine and talking for three hours. So clearly that sort of thing wasn't needed. But I, in general, I'll say something like, if I'm trying to get someone to open up, I can take, it's easy with Twitter or social media. I can say, people have said X, Y, and Z about you. How would you respond to that? And usually people feel so compelled to correct the record. And that is a good opening way. Um, so you talk about icebreakers. Yeah.
0: I've also mm-hmm. heard you say about being heard and being understood.
1: Mm-hmm. And you'll hear about
0: that in relationships too, whether it's not just romantic, but professional, or just that people want to know that even if that you don't agree with them, they just want to un- know that you heard what they had to say and they understood and hey. they wanted. Is that part of what you're talking about? Do you say back to them to make it clear that you really do know what they want to say and that you heard them right?
1: Well, mm, yes and no. So I will float like a hypothesis. Like I'm trying to, so Charlemagne the God, I did an interview with him years ago that was very, very short. And at the time, and actually still to this day, Charlemagne had a less than stellar reputation with black women specifically just for comments he had made. And, you know, he had this whole laundry list of things. And so I didn't want to say like, Charlemagne, do you hate black women? Because that's, it's a hard question. Like the only (laughs) answer is no. And also that's a yes or no question. You know, it doesn't actually open up any opportunity to have a conversation. So I told him instead, like, yo, when I told my friends I was interviewing you, some of them got mad at me and they were like he hates black women <laughs> like why do you think my friends were saying this to me like what have you said because i want to because like you know i could do the research i've already looked this up but i want to know what he thinks is the reason that people have this idea and how would you respond to that and so a question like that which is not like you know, not trying to do the work of like the publicity work of being like, people say you hate black women, that must be really hard for you. Like, no, no, you can say it's hard for you, but I don't have to put words into your mouth. Uh, and then luckily with a place like the New York Times, our fact-checking process is so rigorous and thorough that um we don't do the thing where we like call the subject and read quotes back, but it's I don't think a subject has ever been surprised by what comes in a story, mostly because the fact checker has to make sure that it's correct before it can go out.
0: Jasmine, I think I heard you say that sometimes when you pitch a story in a profile, you want to find out something like the Lil Nas X, you're trying to find out what was behind in the approach and the thinking when he put out that provocative video and how to use mm-hmm. social media. How do you avoid being a fangirl? So like if you're Whoopi Goldberg, I could be wrong, Lil Nas X. Like, Lil Nas X, I think what I heard there, because Sean McGill, that's a tough question you have to ask him. With Lil Nas X, it's almost sort of like you wanted to find out the answer to the why, which is why mm-hmm. I like that piece so much. Is there ever a danger when you, with Questlove or Whoopi Goldberg, that you that you that you're got to put your professional hat on, not oh, trying yeah. to prove that you're tough, that you can be mean, but like, how do you step back and say, I want to make this journalism as opposed to Teen Mac?
1: Every time. I mean, I went all the way to Cape Town, South Africa, and then I to interview Viola Davis, and it was in my head, and then suddenly I was with Viola Davis, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> uh, Luckily, I I give myself like 15 minutes, and usually within 15 minutes, the sort of uh, the star shock wears off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's even it's earlier than that, because celebrities, as they say, are often shorter than we expect. And I'm like, oh, you're we're the same height, you can't possibly be scary. And also I think the writing process can be so tedious that even if I go into it being like, I love this person by draft four, I'm like, they're ruining my life. (laughs) But again, this is why it's useful to have an editor. And this is why i feel so lucky to have a community of other writers and friends to read my stories and offer feedback and stuff. I say that when when I write a profile with someone, I'm not trying to find out something new about my subject because like, they're probably not gonna share that with me. Why would they? But I want to find out why Why everybody loves them like why are they in that vaunted position what do you do for people what are what experience are people having when they interact with your art your material and so if I go into it with that like I love Whoopi Goldberg I have known about Whoopi Goldberg what seems like since the day I was born and so when I met her I was like "Oh oh my god But then I realized, you know, this isn't so much a story about Whoopi Goldberg, but about what Whoopi Goldberg means. And so obviously I'm going to sit and talk to her about all of this, but like the reporting for, for a person like Whoopi, for example, because she's such a great talker, was easy. I just turned on my microphone and Whoopi started talking and I was like, this is amazing. But the real sort of like work intention and skill on my end came with like um being able to place her in a context, a context of art, a context of popular culture, a context of like intellectual discourse, a context of like the expectations of black women and movie stars and all that stuff, because she's had such a long and capacious career. So um, long story short, I do get a little nervous, but most of the time I'm just like, I gotta gotta do my job, I guess, because it is a job.
0: Do you have advice for people in New Haven, up-and-comers, how you succeeded? Would you tell them? you come back to New Haven, by the way?
1: I came back to New Haven for the first time. You know, my family all left New Haven uh, proper, so I hadn't been there in years. I went back for the first time like six months ago, and I was like, this is amazing. What? Nice it's a here. I hadn't been back in so long and it made me feel really silly the advice I would give to people in New Haven is to really squeeze all the resources out of New Haven I like I say now I didn't appreciate I didn't fully appreciate growing up in New Haven and like going you know getting to go to a place like Hill House and then like taking the city bus downtown to go to ECA and then through Hill House I took classes at Southern I took classes at Yale when I was in high school and just like you know, I was just doing a bunch of stuff all the time. And I think that, uh, you know, New Haven can be a city that you feel, um, you can sort of like feel the presence of other larger close cities like Providence or Boston and or New York, but like New Haven in and of itself has so much to do. And I, and I regret spending so much time like trying to get out of New Haven as opposed to just enjoying it for what it is. And um, it's great. So what's it. next
0: for Jasmine Hughes? You won the big award. You're keeping people informed about your friend Gersh. We're all going to think about him. And we're very proud of you. Even though I've never met you for the New Haven young woman who's doing such a great job and being honored and deservedly so. So what's next for Jasmine Hughes?
1: What's next for me is that I have a quite a different story that's coming out in about six weeks. I have been for the past year, I've been reporting on um the mass shooting that happened in Buffalo, New York, where oh, the supermarket. white supremacists went to the supermarket and killed all these older black people. So the one-year anniversary of that is coming up pretty soon. So my story in that will be out around then.
0: I'll be reading it on Saturday because I come to school <laughs> on Saturday, and then the weekly portion is the Times. My wife mm-hmm. and I divide the sections, and <laughs> I'll definitely be reading that one before John Hodgman. He'll be the dessert. <laughs> Jasmine Hughes, thanks so much for joining us on Dateline New Haven, making time. Congratulations again on your award and your career success.
1: Thank you so much. Again, this is just as good as the award. I'm (laughs) so honored to be here today.
0: And thanks to Harry Droz behind the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing, I wish I knew how it feel to be free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long on WNHH. New Haven's home for Community Radio. ¶¶